Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Hey, I invite you to open your Bible and turn with me to the book of Philippians, and we are going to learn about how to have joy, joy in our souls bursting forth into our lives. And we're learning about it from a man who is in prison, and yet he is still writing a letter of joy to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And so today we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 26. It's on page 980, if you got one of our Bibles. And that's kind of our theme verse for studying this book, Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord Always. And we saw one of the reasons that Paul rejoiced last week, if you were here, was he said in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. If the name of Jesus is being lifted high, if the gospel is advancing and making progress, then even though he's in jail, he's still rejoicing. And I got to talk to a lot of people here at the church this week, and I can tell that God is stirring some of us up, and we're thinking, yeah, I do need to be about advancing the gospel. And I got somebody I'm praying for an opportunity to talk to, and I really care about them. I want to share with them the good news of Jesus. I know a lot of people are getting stirred up, like, yeah, I'm going to go out during fireworks week with the church. I'm going to share the gospel. Come to that meeting today. Well, now Paul is going to give us more reasons to continue to rejoice here in our passage this morning. And I really am excited to study them with you because I want you to know this joy. This joy of knowing Jesus Christ, something to pass on to your kids, something to sing about when you're stuck in traffic on the 405, something that transcends emotions and circumstances And so out of respect for God's word, I'm going to ask if we could all stand up as we read our text of scripture for this morning. And I'm going to read, I'm going to start at the end of verse 18, go all the way to verse 26. Please follow along with me as I read. Let's give this our full and undivided attention. This is the word of God. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
That ends the reading of God's word. Please go ahead and grab your seat. And you can see there's this phrase that kind of is the transition between the end of verse 18 and the beginning of verse 19. He said last week we looked at, I'm, hey, if Jesus' name is being proclaimed, I rejoice. But then he says, yes, and I will rejoice. Or yes, and I continue to rejoice. And so under this idea of reasons that Paul is rejoicing, One of them being the name of Jesus going out. But now he's going to give us three more reasons that he personally is rejoicing, even though he is in jail. And so you can see here, he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, if you're taking notes and we give you that handout there, and if you want to write some things down, one thing you could write down is deliverance here equals salvation. If you were reading this passage in the Greek language and you're familiar with Greek and some of the most common vocabulary words, that word that's translated deliverance there, you would notice right away that's the word for salvation. And so there's some debate, what kind of salvation, what kind of deliverance is Paul talking about here? And people have different ideas about how we should interpret this verse, verse 19. Is he talking about his deliverance out of prison, that he's going to be rescued from his cell there and he's going to get to go free? Or is he talking about when we hear the word salvation, we think of his eternal salvation in Jesus Christ? Well, you can see that the things he's, that make him confident about his deliverance are the prayers of the Philippians. That's really encouraging him. And the help of the Holy Spirit. And he's referred to here as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And he says, hey, I, I know you guys are praying for me, and I know that makes a difference. I know I have the Spirit with me, and He's my helper. He's my comforter. He's the one who's alongside of me. He's in me. And I know that makes a difference. So I'm confident. I continue to rejoice in my salvation. And so some people will argue, he, I'm going to rejoice because I'm getting out of prison. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, ah, one reason I'm going to continue to rejoice is I'm saved. Look what he says in the next verse. Here's why I think that it's talking about eternal salvation from sin in Jesus. He says, verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So the rest of the passage is going to break down those two options. Is he going to keep on living or is he going to die? But I think first he's saying, whether I live or whether I die, I know that this all turns out in my salvation. Now, this phrase here, eager expectation in English, you can see there at the beginning of verse 20, eager expectation. It's this really unique word in the Greek. It gives you this idea of someone straining their neck to try to see something. Like, I know it's coming. I know it's right over the horizon there. I wish I could see it. So it's like I'm so eager to see what my salvation, when I'm, when I'm there with Jesus, when I see Jesus in his glory, 
When I get to be with him and I'm made like him, like I'm so excited to see what salvation is ultimately going to look like, that he's like straining his neck. Like, I just want to see what, it, what is it going to be like to really be completely saved outside of the presence of sin around me or any inclination to sin within me. I get to just be with Jesus. He's like, that's what I'm eagerly expecting and I'm straining to try to see it. And he says, it's my hope. And the Bible uses the word hope here so much differently than we do. When, when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about a hope that does not disappoint. It's not talking about the weather app kind of hope. Do you know this kind of hope that I'm speaking of? Where you, anybody, anybody use the weather app on their phone? Why do you do that? You know what I mean? Like it just, just raises expectations to disappoint them, right? I mean, is that thing accurate or is that thing just wrong most of the time, right? And so you put your hope in the weather app that there won't be rain and then there is rain. Or you want it to rain and then it doesn't rain. And you get your hopes up and then you get disappointed. See, oftentimes when we use the word hope down here, we expect there to be a level of disappointment because we're so used to disappointment. Paul's saying, I've got an expectation for something that will not disappoint me. I'm looking forward to salvation. I already know how the whole story turns out. It turns out in my deliverance. And so I'm trying to see it. And I have this hope that won't disappoint. And then he says this in the middle of verse 20. He says, I will not be at all ashamed. Like there is no way. That me believing in Jesus, me trusting in him for salvation, there is no way in the end when it's all said and done that I will be ashamed because I believed in Jesus Christ. He says, no, I have full courage now and always that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He's saying to the Philippians, hey, guys, if I make it out of here and I get to see you again, or if I die in here and I go to see Jesus, let me tell you, I've got courage and I know I am not going to be ashamed. I am going to enjoy salvation. And I love this phrase here where he says, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That word honored there in the Greek, it's got the idea of mega. Like Christ is going to be made large. If I live, I'm going to make Christ large. Christ in me will be made known. Or if I die, Christ in me will be made known. Either way, Jesus is going to get the glory for my life. That's what he's saying. Paul here, he, he says, hey, I, I will continue to rejoice in my salvation. And then in classic Paul writing, he just starts stacking up words in a run on sentence to over describe this this hope that he has that he will not be put to shame. And this is a big deal. Go to Second Timothy, chapter one. I just want to zero in on this idea of being put to shame. Second Timothy, it's a little bit over to the right here in the New Testament. We just read it this week on scripture of the day, if you're keeping up with us. And this is the last letter that Paul writes. And it's also when he's in prison and it's right before he's going to be martyred for his faith. So in Philippians, he's not sure, he's kind of thinking it through as he's writing it out. Am I going to get out of here and come and see you guys again? Or am I going to die and depart and be with Christ? But here in 2 Timothy, he knows for sure he's not getting out. And he's going to die while he's here in, in prison. 
And so he writes to Timothy, and look what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Once you start looking for it, this idea of being ashamed is something Paul talked about a lot. And he said, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Hey, Timothy, I hope you're not ashamed of me. I hope you're not ashamed of our message, the good news of Jesus that got me into this prison. And I hope you're not ashamed of me now that I am a prisoner, now that I'm being treated like a criminal. I hope you're not ashamed because then he says this later in verse 12. He says, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me or it could be translated what has been entrusted to him. I know whom I believed in. I gave my life to Jesus. I trusted in Jesus for my salvation. And I know that when it's all said and done, I'm not going to be ashamed that I trusted in Jesus Christ. He will not disappoint me. He will not let me down right now. Right. Why don't you write down the list of all the times that Jesus has failed you in your life? Go ahead. Are you done yet? Right. Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus does what he says. Jesus loves his own who are in the world. He loves them to the end. He's like, hey, do you know where we've put our trust? We've put our trust in Jesus. What else do you want to invest your life in? But him, he's the one, the only one we can really 100% count on. So one reason that Paul rejoices is he rejoices in his salvation. And the reason he rejoices in his salvation is because there's no way he could ever be put to shame because he's trusted in Jesus. Let's get it down for point number one. Reason to rejoice here this morning. Your trust is in Jesus. And I want you to circle Jesus, capital letters with Jesus. I felt like making point number one. This is Jesus we're talking about here, people. Like this is the one, if there's anybody worth giving your life to, is there anybody you should believe what he says and trust in his promises? His name is Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen from anybody on this? Like we should, we're, this is who we're believing in. And sometimes we get like, well, how much faith do I have? And how strong is my faith? And I'm one of those of little faith. You know, it's not really about how much faith do we have. It's about who is our faith in? And the more we understand it and know who our faith is in, the more faith we will have. So don't make it about your faith. Make it about who your faith is in. And your faith is in Jesus. And Paul says, yeah, I might be a prisoner, but I'm a prisoner of Christ. I might be a criminal, but I'm a criminal for the Lord. And let me tell you, if the world's going to treat me with shame, I will not be ashamed. Because I have trusted in Jesus. This is something that I've done with my life that is going to pay off in the end of this. Paul has full courage, complete confidence. And I want you to know that if you've trusted in Jesus with your life, when it's all said and done, you will not be put to shame. You will be glad. You will rejoice that you are with Jesus Christ. And this world right now, they might try to shame you. And if you fall into sin right now, you might feel ashamed. But the fact that you've trusted in Jesus, 
is something where you will not be put to shame. I mean, this is something, once you start looking for it, Paul writes this, especially in Romans. He's saying over and over, those who trust in the Lord will not be ashamed. They will not be put to shame. And maybe a man who experienced so much shame and being physically beaten and thrown in jail and treated like a criminal and mocked and persecuted by the Jews in his life, he knew that even if he got treated in a shameful way now, he would not be ashamed when he experienced the fullness of his salvation in Jesus. And in that, he rejoiced. Can you rejoice like that? Can you rejoice that in the end you see the big picture? You know how it all turns out. It turns out for your deliverance, your salvation. And there is no shame in that. Now, why is Paul so adamant about repeating this phrase? Why is he saying it to Timothy? Why is he saying it himself? Why does he write it in the book of Romans over and over and over that those who trust in the Lord will not be put to shame? Well, the reason that Paul is so into this idea is because like many good things in life, it comes from the Old Testament. He's actually just repeating what God said in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Joel chapter 2. We've got to go back to the Old Testament and see where this idea of not being put to shame comes from. So Joel is right after Hosea, and it's right before Amos, if that really helps you out there, in the Old Testament, all right? The book of Joel. And we love the Old Testament here at this church. In fact, in many summers here at our church, we have preached through some of these minor prophet books of the Old Testament. We've gone through Hosea together before. We've gone through Joel before. We did a little bit of Amos last summer. The only reason we're not doing a minor prophet this summer and we're doing Philippians instead is we just did a major prophet of Daniel earlier this year. And we're hoping to do more Old Testament after Philippians later this year. And so I hope you have a passion for what God has said in the Old Testament, because once you start studying the Old Testament, you realize that a lot of the New Testament is just reiterating what the Old Testament has already said. And one of the beautiful things about the Old Testament is God speaks in the first person. And God talks directly to his people. And here in Joel chapter 2, look at verse 25. And look at verse 25 of Joel chapter 2. This is page 762 if you got one of our books. And, And the context of this book of Joel, if you haven't studied it before, is there's this massive locust plague that comes in and wipes out all of the crops of the people of Israel so that they're going to struggle for years to recover, to have the food they need uh, from, from just growing up their, their crops, from their farming. And so it's after this locust plague has come through that they get this prophecy. And here's what God says to his people after the devastation of the locust plague. God says this in Joel 2.25. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. An amazing statement by God that he's going to restore to the people of Israel the wasted years 
after this locust plague came in and they were starving or near starvation for years, God says he's going to restore those years. He's going to make up those years to them after, and he lists here, all these different kinds of locusts. Now, I've always thought that would be a great camp compass theme, the locust theme, right? And all the kindergartners could be the swarming locusts and the first graders could be the hoppers. They could wear these cute little, you know, locust outfits, but nobody's ever shared my passion for that. (laughs) But he says, I'm going to restore to you the years. Look, verse 26, he continues that thought. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And here's what you're going to do when you when you get these years restored and now you've got plenty again and you're eating and being satisfied, eating till you're full. You're going to praise the name of the Lord, your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people, God says, shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God. There is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. Hear the Lord say it to you. Hear Him boast. Hear Him declare that those who trust in Me, in the end, they will eat, they will be satisfied, and they will never again be put to shame. And see, Paul believed that. He believed it with all of his heart while he's sitting there in jail, not knowing if he's going to live or die. He says, one thing I do know is I will not be ashamed because I know who I believe in. And I believe in the Lord and His people will not be put to shame. There is no one like the Lord. And so that's, that's what God says. And, and think about the life of the Apostle Paul, like this guy that we've been studying now in jail in Philippians. We read about in 2 Timothy, right before he's going to die for his faith in Jesus. I mean, when you think about the Apostle Paul, a lot of times he's such an example. He's so inspiring that he can seem hard for us to relate to because, I mean, there's so many amazing things to think about. His radical conversion when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. I mean, the way that he went out on those missionary journeys to preach the gospel in so many cities and planted so many churches. And then he wrote so many letters to encourage those people that we read and they encourage us. And then he's in prison all the time, getting persecuted all the time. And then eventually he's killed for his faith as he goes all the way to Caesar, to the emperor, and he preaches to him the gospel in the name of Jesus. And there's so many things to think about with the Apostle Paul. You know what doesn't come to our mind right away? The fact that the guy wasted most of his life trying to keep the Old Testament law. The fact that most of the guy's life, he was so puffed up with pride as a Pharisee, as a Hebrew of Hebrews. The fact that when it comes to martyrs for the faith, when the first Christian was killed for their faith, Stephen, he was the guy, Saul at that time, he was the guy who led the whole thing. And God restored all of the wasted years of Paul's life before he knew Jesus. And he did so much with those years that he was in Christ that he says, I know how God works. And I am ashamed of who I used to be. I count that person as loss. I've forgotten about that. But I will not be ashamed because I am in Jesus Christ. Do you know this confidence? Do you know how it's all going to turn out for your deliverance that you will experience the fullness of salvation in the presence of Jesus Christ and you will see your Lord and you will know him. You will be in the midst of him. 
There, you will see there is no one like him. And as one of his people, you can hear the Lord say to you that his people will not be put to shame. That's something that we can rejoice in. We can continue to rejoice that our trust is in Jesus. Now go back to Philippians 1 because there's a famous verse here that Paul gets to. After talking about how he knows Christ is going to be made large in his life, whether he lives or whether he dies. He now says this. This is Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, probably the most famous verse in our passage here this morning. And he says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So let's picture this. This guy's in jail. Okay. And he's thinking there's two possible ways this could play out. They could let me go and I could keep on living. And maybe I could go and see my beloved Philippians again and fellowship with them and encourage them. Or I might end up dying here in this jail and I could be killed for my faith. And then I would go and see Jesus and be in his presence and be with him. And so you've heard of the the lose-lose scenario. Well, as Paul sits here in prison and he thinks about living or dying, it's a win-win scenario in his mind. If I live, it's Christ. And if I die, it's gain. That's how he thinks. Like this really can't go wrong. And he starts to break it down right here. Verse 22. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. That means the Lord has more for me to do. If I wake up another day and I'm still here, there's a reason I'm still here. God's got a purpose for me on planet Earth. That God's got something left for me to do. Yet, I, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. Can you see how he's actually like putting these two ideas? Hmm, do I want to get out of jail and keep on living? Or do I want to die here in jail? And, and hmm, this is a tough decision. You know, he's like, wow, this is a tough choice. I'm hard pressed between the two. And then he says this. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Now, let me ask you a question as you sit here this morning. Do you think that dying would be far better than living? Do you think that being in the presence of Jesus is better than anything you could possibly experience later on today? That's what this guy really believed. And that that was a major reason that he rejoiced. And and maybe that's the reason that a lot of people who, who are Christians or who claim to be Christians and are running around in the name of Jesus Christ, why they don't really experience the fullness of joy that the Bible says we can have in our relationship is maybe the honest truth is we would not rather die and be with Jesus, but we want to keep living here on earth. And this man, he found joy because he knew if he died, he would be with Jesus. And he actually believed all the way down in his soul that that would be better than being here. He knew it would be far better. Like it's not even really a comparison between this life and the here and now and the eternal life, the life of the age to come in the presence of Jesus. If you're trying to figure out which one, that one is far better, he says. So we need to make sure that if you've believed in Jesus, 
As you grow up and mature in your faith, the conclusion that you should come to in your life is it would be better to be in the presence of Jesus than it would be to be here on planet Earth. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Let's, let's kind of really think this through together. Let's see if we can get to this same mindset. Hebrews chapter 2, after we finish the letters of Paul, we're going to dive in to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to get to the rest of the letters of the New Testament in our scripture of the day reading. We're actually going to be bringing you the book of Hebrews from Jerusalem. Uh, the book of Hebrews is all about the old covenant and how people should leave behind the old covenant because the new covenant is way better with Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be there in the old city of Jerusalem where people to this very day are still living out the old covenant. And maybe we'll even go ask some of those Orthodox Jews and rabbis there in the old city of Jerusalem. Why are you still living in the old covenant when the book of Hebrews says the new covenant in, in Christ is so much superior? And so Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says this about Jesus it talks about how Jesus is fully God in chapter 1, and then Hebrews chapter 2 makes it very clear that Jesus was fully man. And it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, we are made of flesh and blood. He himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. Jesus humbled himself to be born as a man. He put on the glory of God, put on flesh that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, now when it comes to being a Christian, we believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and there's three essential things of the gospel. The first one is who is Jesus? He's the Christ, the holy and anointed one, the son of God. He is the Lord. That's what we just learned in point number one. Hey, I can have confidence. I can rejoice because I'm trusting in Jesus. Do you know who he is? Now, the second point here, though, is man, even dying would be better than living. Well, how can we have that confidence? The second part of the gospel is very clear because Jesus, what did he do on that cross? He died for our what? Sin. Okay, so that's the part out of the, the Jesus is the Christ. He died for our sin. He rose again. The part that people talk about the most is the fact that Jesus died for our sin. Well, if you believe that Jesus on that cross right before he died, he said it is finished, paid in full. He has already done it all. If you believe that Jesus already died for you, then you don't need to be afraid of dying yourself. That should be the logical conclusion that we come to. Okay, Now, death is something we try to avoid and we don't want to talk about. But the truth is, all of us are going to face it in our own lives. And probably before we face it in our own lives, we're going to face it in lives of people we really love and care about. Death is a brutal reality that all of us are going to experience here in this on this planet Earth. And people here in Orange County, when somebody dies, they want to act like, oh, it's just not a problem. And they just start saying all these things. All of a sudden, everybody gets super positive, And they're like, hey, it's okay. It's all going to be all right. And they're in a better place. And it's just like we don't want to really deal with it. And we act like death is just some natural part of life. Death is not a natural part of life. 
Death is the curse of sin. The Bible is very clear that the reason there is death is because we live in a fallen world and and there is sin. And this is a part of the curse. The wages of sin is that's why we die. And that's not only why we die physically, but the Bible even goes so far as to say there's this second death on the other side of death. Not only because of your sin that we all inherit from our forefathers, all of us going all the way back to Adam, not only because of our sin are we going to die physically, but there's this second death where after your body stops working, your heart stops beating, you stop breathing, well then your soul, it's going to be judged according to what you have done and the sins that you have committed in this life, you will have to be punished for in eternity. There's a second death, the Bible speaks of, where we will be judged, held accountable by God for our sins. That's why people are afraid of death. They don't want to die physically. And then maybe they even come to understand that beyond death, there could be some kind of judgment. And so they're afraid of death. They're afraid of what could be beyond death, this experience of punishment and and judgment. And here's what it's saying is that if Jesus already died on the cross for you, he already paid that punishment. He already canceled the debt of sin between you and God. And now when you die, you don't have to be afraid because Jesus paid it all. He destroyed the work of death when he already died. So if you believe in the death of Jesus, one of the conclusions that you need to come to in your thinking is because Jesus died for me, I don't have to be afraid of dying myself. That's what it says in Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. We we're taken away from the fear of death. Death no longer has a sting to it. Yes, we're still going to die. Our physical body is going to stop working. But beyond that, our soul will not experience this second death of punishment for sin. We will experience the fullness of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And so look at these words again here in verse 14. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And he delivers, he saves all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, in the spiritual realm, there's this whole system of evil run by Satan and the rest of the demons and people are slaves to their sin and that sin is going to lead them to death and that death is going to experience all kinds of punishment and judgment. And because Jesus destroyed that when he died, Satan has no power over you. Sin, you're not a slave to it. Death has lost its sting and you don't have to be afraid of dying anymore. Is that good news to anybody here today? Jesus already died for you. So Paul's not afraid of dying in any way. In fact, what you start to realize is that he is looking forward to it. He's expecting it. Like he thinks it's going to be better than living. That's how far he's gone in his mind in thinking about it, getting this eternal perspective, this kingdom of heaven mindset. Like not only am I not afraid to die, I'm actually looking forward to it. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You've got to get this, uh, this analogy that he uses back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, how he compares this life 
to the life of the age to come, eternal life outside of space and time in eternity. And this is the comparison that he makes here. Second Corinthians chapter five. He, he says, this is page 966. He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Okay. So notice what he's doing here. He's using an analogy. He's making a comparison. We're living in a tent And if this tent gets destroyed, we've got a house to go to. We've got an eternal home in the heavens made by God. Verse 2, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What an amazing phrase. Death is not going to be the end of life. Death is actually going to be experiencing more life, the fullness of life. Now, he's using a camping analogy, everybody. And we're Orange County city slickers. That's who we are, right? Maybe some of us are L.A. County, right? And we might enjoy camping for a couple of days. For a week, I mean, you just heard an applause here when we saw the nautical inn experience versus camping experience. The people rejoiced, right? Some of the people serving at the camp are like, I'm, I'm all of a sudden much more excited about serving the Lord at camp this summer, right? Now, I don't know if you've gone camping recently because many of us choose not to with our free time, right? But if you do love camping and you're out there, man, do you ever start to stink a little bit, you know? Do you ever wish for refrigeration, washer dryers, showers, toilets, beds? Like, just a quick survey. House or tent? Who wants to live in one of those for the rest of your life? House people? Who's with me? Who's with me, right? House people. Okay, I asked. Pastor Daniel is one of the most uh, committed campers that I know, okay? He's got the whole system down. He knows the right day. You've got to call in to get the right spot at the right place, he loves it. There's a passion. There's a zeal. You can see the fire in his eyes when it's camping time coming up. And I went and I asked him, brother to brother, man to man, soul to soul, you love camping more than anybody else I know. Would you rather camp for the rest of your life or live in a house? And even Pastor Daniel said he'd rather live in a house, okay? He likes coffee. He likes certain things. You know what I mean? That's the comparison here. If you would prefer this life, what you are saying is I'd rather camp than live in a house. I'd rather live in this temporary dwelling of this body that God has given me, this tent, than some eternal home in the heavens that God has prepared for me, that Jesus has fashioned for me, that he wants to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. In my father's house, Jesus says, there are many rooms, there are many dwelling places, many mansions for all of us to go and be at home. And if we're thinking that we would rather camp than live in a house with Jesus and the father. We're not thinking right. He says, do you feel the groaning sometimes? Do you feel the burden that there has to be something better than this sin cursed fallen world we're living in? There is something better. And 
we can rejoice that because of Jesus Christ, we will experience something far better than camping. He says it's going to be swallowed up when we get to the end. We're not going to, after this life. We're not going to be found naked or exposed. We're going to be further clothed. We're going to be swallowed up by life. The experience that is coming is more of the fullness of life than the experience we have had so far. He says in verse five, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. You think God knows what life is really all about? Do you take God at his word? If he says it's better then than it is now, do you believe him? He's given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord and we walk by faith, not by sight. But yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, whether here or there, we make it our aim to please him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say, along with Paul, Okay, so I know in our passage, Philippians 1, verse 21, Paul makes it very personal. For to me, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But then look what he says here in verse 8. He says, yes, we. See, he thinks we should all think this way. We are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Can you say that? That could be a reason if you're not experiencing the fullness of joy that is in Jesus Christ. One of the reasons that you might be missing out on joy is because you can't say you'd rather be with Jesus than where you are now. Because no matter what's happening to you now, whether you feel like it's good times or bad, happy or sad, you can know that what you're going to experience in Jesus is better than the here and now. And in that, you can rejoice. Death is the door to eternity. Let's get that down for number two. Death is the door to eternity. As believers, we should not think that death is the end, but a, a new beginning, a beginning to a better and more full experience of life in the presence of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We would rather, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. It's far better. I would rather be there. And if you're so focused on your life now that you will not find eternal joy in this present Life, But if you can rejoice that you know a better life is coming, you will find joy in this present experience. And so this is a reason that Paul rejoices. And I hope it's something that you can personally relate to because you believe it will be better to die and be with Jesus. The famous preacher, D.L. Moody, who saw that great revival in Chicago, went around the world preaching the gospel and seeing revival. He said, and one time he said famously that someday you're going to hear that I am dead. Don't you believe it? He said, I will be more alive than I have ever been. Is that how you think about death? Do you think of it as a reason to rejoice? Now go back to Philippians chapter one. And look what it says here, because he actually comes to the conclusion, even though he says he would rather 
depart and be with Christ, that is far better. He actually comes to the right conclusion here in the book of Philippians that that's not going to happen yet. Look what he says here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 24. He talks about remaining, staying here in this life. It's the word meno, to abide, to remain. It says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he's thinking it through. Am I going to live or am I going to die? Wow, dying, that would be nice. That would be far better. But I think that I'm going to live. And the reason he thinks he's going to live is it's necessary for these Philippians. He's looking at them. And maybe he's seeing in them that they don't have the same joy, some of the same growth that he has experienced in his faith in Jesus. And he wants them to experience this mature and complete faith in Jesus. And so he says, no, I'm going to remain. I'm convinced that I will stay because I've got more work to do. And the reason I'm going to stay here in space and time is because of you guys. Because I want to see you make progress in your faith. I want to see you come to know the joy of your faith. I want you to know Jesus, to have this full courage that I'm not going to be ashamed, to have this idea that it's far better to be with him. I can see that you guys don't fully have that. So I'm going to continue for your progress and your joy. Now, I want you to see how what Paul is saying here is different than how you and I might think about it. Because if you and I were thinking about, hmm, is it better to die and be with Christ? Or should I stay here? I know how that thinking goes. I've heard it before. Well, I mean, yeah, I I can't wait to be with Jesus. but, But what about my retirement? I mean, I've been saving up my whole life for this thing. I've already, I've already bought a house in Idaho or Texas. I can't wait to move to. I mean, do you realize how much I've been putting in that 401k for how many years now, right? That's what a lot of people think about about life. It's not a decision here between do I get to be with Jesus or do I get to be with other people? See, there's like a selfish thought that comes in. Well, I want to live the rest of my life. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying, hey, I hope Jesus comes back any day or I can't wait to die and be with Jesus. But I sure hope I get married first and get to have a family because I really want to be in love and experience all of that before I go to heaven. Because I'm not sure what that what they've got in the love department up there in heaven. And I'm kind of suspicious about that. So I want to make sure I get that in down here on earth because maybe it's not going to be as good in heaven. That's what a lot of people are thinking. And the reason they want to stay on earth is, is a selfish reason. There's something in life that I want to experience. And hey, retirement is a blessing from God. Being married and having a family, these are great things that God gives to enjoy and to experience. But Paul's not given that as his reason for keeping on living. The reason he wants to stay alive on planet Earth is other people, not himself. Is that your reason for being here? See, here's my concern. We're going through the book of Philippians and so many people are telling me, I love Philippians. I love this positive book. I love the joy in the book. And the truth is that this book is so much more others oriented than you and I are. The truth is, I don't know if we're going to like this book by the end. 
Because it's going to tell us that other people are fundamentally more important than we are. And that goes against everything that we've come to believe as Americans. Where it's about us being free to be ourselves. And Paul's saying, I want to live for other people. I mean, he's going to go on and say this in chapter 2, verse 3. He's going to say, do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. How many things should we do for ourselves, according to Paul here in Scripture? How many? Not one of them. Not one thing should be selfishly motivated. Everything should be viewing others as more significant than ourselves. So the whole reason he wanted to stay around and that he became convinced that he would stay around is he believed that there was more progress, more joy for the Philippians to experience in their faith. And so it was necessary. It was a need that he would stay because other people needed his ministry. And how big of a deal was it? To do this ministry, to invest his life in other people. Look what he says in chapter 2, 17. We'll get to this one later. Chapter 2, verse 17. He goes back, and even if I am going to die, he says here in Philippians 2, 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering about upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, even if I do end up giving my entire life for your faith, for your progress, for your joy, even if it costs me my life, even if I die because I'm the guy out here trying to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and I want them to be saved, and I want them to grow up in their faith even if that is the reason i end up dying he says i am glad and rejoice with you all likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me you are worth me giving my life away for that's what he says if the only thing that i ever get to do with my life is pour my life out for other people to know Jesus in salvation or to grow up in their faith that is in Jesus Christ, then that is a reason worth living. And in that, I rejoice and I'm glad for you and you guys should all rejoice and be glad for me. That's what he says. He says, this is the reason worth living here on planet Earth, to give your life away for other people. In Paul's mind, more time, more, more space getting out of jail, having more days to live on planet Earth, that equaled more ministry. Let's get that down for number three. More space and time equals more ministry. And because he knew that the longer he was here, God had something for him to do then he rejoiced in that because that meant other people are going to experience progress and joy in the faith. And if other people are going to benefit from my time on planet Earth and that I will rejoice. Can you rejoice because your life is making a difference in other Christians life to encourage them so that they're making progress or other people growing in their faith and experiencing joy in their life because you're coming alongside of them. You're loving them. You're praying for them. You're giving of your time, your money, your resources. You're giving to other people and other people are being built up because of your investment. That was a reason that Paul found to continue to rejoice. He wanted to spend his life on something that mattered. And that that gave him great joy. 
See this word here in Philippians 2, 17, when he says, even if I am to be poured out, this is a Greek word we can immediately understand. If he's going to be poured out, if he's going to give his whole life, if he's going to die for the ministry, the Greek word there is spendo, okay? We can understand that. Hey, even if I do continue to live, let me tell you why I'm going to find joy in life. Because I know what I'm spending my life on is worth it. I know I'm making an investment that's going to matter. It's going to reap dividends in eternity. Go, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's, let's end with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And, and, and see if this challenges your American dream. Where it's about you and your family having your life so that you will be built up and blessed. Okay? Now, I, I understand that we want to pass on life to our families. Okay? And that is a good and right desire. If you want to invest your life in a way that will benefit your children financially and especially spiritually to make disciples of your children, I want to affirm that. That is a great thing for you to want to do. But if we took a poll here in North Orange County, if we went into Long Beach and Lakeview and we asked everybody around here, what are you, what's the most important thing in your life? What are you investing your life in? Family would be an overwhelming response from people who do not believe in Jesus Christ. A lot of them are giving their lives away for their natural, physical family. See, that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about something that comes naturally. Those, those, those human relationships where we naturally, as a, as a husband, you naturally care about your wife. As a child, you naturally care about your parents. As parents, we definitely naturally want to give our life for our children. He's talking about Christian people, people he has a spiritual relationship with, not a not necessarily a natural relationship with. Look what he says here. And these people in Second Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 14, these guys are really giving him a hard time. This church has so much sin in it. They're divided. They're accusing Paul. Some people are saying that Paul's not even a good teacher here. There's, I mean, these people are really giving him a hard time. And he says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. For the third time, I'm going to come to you guys to talk about this with you. And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. What an amazing phrase. I'm not in it for what you can give me. I'm here to give myself for you. And he wasn't getting much out of these Corinthians. He was getting a hard time. He was getting a headache. And he says, no, I'm ready to come to you. I'll give my life away for you. And then he uses that analogy. Children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Yeah, we understand that as parents, we want to give something to our kids. But that's how Paul is feeling for this church that's not even listening to him. And then he says this in verse 15. I will most gladly, I will rejoice I will most gladly spend, I'll give everything I've got, time, money, resources, and I will give my very self. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. See, when you're giving your life away and it's benefiting other people, you will find a reason to rejoice. Because even if you're not doing well emotionally, your circumstances are struggling, as you see other people make progress, and find joy in their faith, you will see that your life has mattered. And you will see that you have a purpose in being here on planet Earth is so that people can grow up 
in their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says this phrase, and I really want us to think about it. The band's going to go ahead and come up right now, and they're going to do two songs for us. And these two songs are meant to get us thinking, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So they're going to sing a song right now about going to heaven. One of the lines in the song is, oh, for the bliss of dying, is what they're going to say. The joy, the rapture it's going to be to die and be in the presence of Jesus. Is that something you can relate to? Is that a reason you rejoice? That you know dying is going to be gain. It's going to be bonus time. It's going to be eternity. It's going to be better. And then we're going to sing a song that all we really have to live is Christ. Can you really say that here today? That my life is not about what I'm doing. It's about what I'm doing in Christ. It's not something that I'm living for for myself. I'm living for Christ and what he's calling me to do in other people. And so as we sing these songs, let's really meditate in our hearts. Can we say here today to live is Christ and to die is gain. Father, we come to you. And we see Paul's reasons to continue to rejoice. And Father, we should, we should be overflowing. We should be bursting forth. But yet we confess that these are hard things for us to think about here on earth. God, we confess that we do get suspicious of what it's going to be like in heaven and eternal life. And we're prone to hang on to the things of this world and the things that we want to do in this life. We also confess our selfishness that we're prone to think about ourselves and not consider others as more significant. And God, we see how we're missing out on joy because we can't say to live is Christ and to die is gain. So God, we need you to do a work in our hearts here this morning to teach us this perspective that Paul has in prison so that we can also continue to rejoice here in our lives. God, please don't let the summer of joy be something we talk about. Let it be something we experience with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.